Supercast is produced in Melbourne, Australia, also known as Nam, the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of the lands across Australia where this podcast was recorded. We pay respect to their elders past and present and recognise Australian Aboriginal culture as one of the world's oldest storytelling traditions. As people, we're very drawn to things that fascinate us and we're very drawn to mystery. We're not all the same, but we try and strike a balance between safety, comfort, and then things that kind of excite us and kind of give us a bit of adrenaline, get, you know, get, get the juices flowing. You know, when we design, if you look at Melbourne and you think about the CBD, the grid in many ways is very boring. It's functionally very good, so it's in many ways very easy to navigate the city, and that's good, and that gives people a degree of comfort. But it's also very, it's very rigid. For, you know, the streets are basically the same, the pattern repeats. It's only when you get off the main sort of streets and you get into the laneways and little alleyways and things that it becomes a little bit more interesting. And that's why we're drawn to those, those areas, and that's why they're kind of talked about a lot. They offer something different, they're more vibrant, they're more interesting, there's more things going on. You're listening to Supercast, a podcast from Assemble Papers in collaboration with RMIT Design Hub, exploring the sensory and embodied experience of built and unbuilt environments. I think what's really important in, in cities is that there's also kind of a some kind of mix of formality and informality. And I think what we're seeing, particularly in Western cities, is too much formality, too much design and not enough space for spontaneity and for, you know, expression, particularly when we, you know, have a very diverse society as well. So people want to, to use public spaces in, in very different ways and, and buildings um, too. My name is Jonathan Daly. I'm the director of UB Lab or the Urban Behaviour Lab. Um, we apply behavioural science and urban ethnography in architecture and urban design. All design, in a sense, has intent behind it. You know, w- whether we design an internal space in a building or an external space um, in the public realm, there, there are always some intent around how it's going to be used. We want people to be safe. We want people to be able to move, to circulate, um, to, to navigate um, the, the space that they're in. Quite often, there'll be many conflicting intents in there as well about how people use that space because different people want it used in different ways. The idea that you could definitively design a space that people would behave exactly the way you wanted is next to impossible. That kind of um, determinancy you might only find in an environment like a prison where it is so controlled but even then you'd still find variation how prisoners respond to to that environment with design and um, any kind of intervention in architecture or urban design what we can't accurately predict is how people will respond to that there are many many different possibilities in terms of how people can can use something. And if you take a common object like a, a chair or a table, we have you know, very um, well-established um, ideas about how to use those objects, but they can be used for many, many things. If you take a table, I mean, obviously, you, you can work on a table, you can um, eat on a table, you can sleep on a table. I mean, people find uh, many, many uses out of um, different objects and in many unpredictable ways. 
maybe an example of that would be skateboarding, particularly uh, street skating, where skateboarders will sometimes just accidentally discover an area of the city that's good to skate in. But they'll also scout areas as well. They'll, they'll deliberately look for areas and they will test um, certain obstacles, the street furniture and ledges and things like that to, to, to see if it's, um, it's good to, to skate on. So I think that's kind of an example of subverting the intended use of a space. I, I think Melbourne is, it's really very typical Western city despite its geographical location. You know, we're very, very focused on health and safety here, um, more so than a lot of the world, uh, certainly a lot of other countries that I've lived in. So we, we, we tend to manage things very, very carefully. It's a very kind of rule-based, very health and safety-focused kind of culture that we have here. Typically, what, something happens here, and then there's a bit of an outcry, and everyone wants a new law, a new rule to manage it. That's kind of the general approach. We think a new rule will solve everything. Put up a sign, another sign. People are very aware of this. It's you know, it's it's in the media. It's very visible. We see it. So we're I think people generally are kind of very aware of these things. But it doesn't mean that they're you know perfect role models in this um, at all. So we we have these kind of you know very um, rigid kind of rules. Now what's kind of more, more interesting I think is that it's not that we all follow the rules. We're we're not that kind of um, conforming, but. We know when you're not following them, you know? So we know, we're very aware of when other people are not doing what they're supposed to do. It's interesting, you know, this morning I was riding my bike here and some of the bike paths that I had to use to get here were so badly constructed, they were so badly designed. And then some were really excellent. For example, the new bike path on Rathdown Street is now really good with a buffer space on left and right. But some of the spaces were terrifyingly bad. I almost got hit by a car a couple of times and it made me think about how Melbourne is not the sort of city where user innovation is really taken into account. There are definitely cities and entire countries where it is assumed that the rules will say one thing but people will improvise around them and then if there is enough of a critical mass that will trigger a change of rules. But I don't think Australia is that kind of country. I don't think that there's a lot of uh, regulation following user behavior. And so there I am on those bike paths thinking, do I just let myself be injured? How am I supposed to respond to this disappearing bike path or this extremely dangerous intersection? It happens on a daily basis, actually. And it's always like the risk or the onus is on you, the individual, to kind of not die <laughs> in this situation. And it's that thing of like... Sometimes the safest thing to do is like move up onto the footpath, but then it's safe for you, but maybe not safe for pedestrians. And and you kind of get you get the ire of pedestrians or of cars or other vehicles. You know, like you you kind of as a cyclist, I feel like I feel like being a cyclist has really changed my perception of the city because it's like you're kind of placed in this really vulnerable position, and it's. Um, and it's always your fault. You're loathed yeah. on all sides. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. Mm. Hi, everyone. If you like, you can grab a chair to make yourself comfortable or, of course, lay about, stand, wander, whatever pleases you. Certainly, I'll probably end up wandering around a little bit as I talk because I'm the kind of person who likes to walk and talk. When I've been there, I've actually sat in a specific spot, not because that's a sweet spot, 
right? Like I might sit on the mound and I'll move around. I'm not sitting there because it's a sweet spot. I'm just sitting there because it might be, I might be just sitting on the grass. And then when I'm listening to the um, sound, I'm listening at, you know, in the same way as I would listen if I'm outside, you know, I'm stretching my ears. Oh, what's over there in the distance? This is Madeline Cornish. Madeline co-curated Superfield, an exhibition at RMIT Design Hub, with Philip Samatsis, artistic director of the Bogong Centre for Sound Culture. The studio is a very isolating environment for anyone who's an artist, who has an atelier or a sound studio somewhere. You clock in, you go in there by yourself, you paint away, you, you compose, you draw, more or less in isolation alone for most people, maybe not everyone, but m- most people. And that isolation started to, I, didn't, I don't mind it, but I, mean, I felt like it was limiting, limiting me as an artist, that I actually want to be in a, a lively environment to be able to respond to conditions that I wasn't in control of. Sound studios are all about control. It's about controlling the acoustics. It's about having decent playback. It's about a uniformity in some way and homogeneity. Um, they kind of are designed as neutral spaces. And they're all the things that I'm not interested in. I want to be challenged. I want these environments to be mutable, um, protean, that they're dynamic and difficult. So I often place myself in hostile environments in order to evoke something that I can't control and, and to, to develop a set of reactions that help instill a more kind of spontaneous or intuitive set of responses to the situation. It's very different to going to a place with a very prescribed set of ideas and then implementing those ideas in a very carefully considered manner. So it's a form of improvisation, spontaneity that I'm interested in. So how um, densities came about was actually um, from driving back and forth from Melbourne to Bogong. There's many um, pine plantations, right? Popanka, Myrtleford and Bright in particular have got huge pine plantations. And over the years, I have watched them from being lush green forests to moonscapes. And also, I became aware of um, hearing the forestry department advertise on TV saying how environmentally friendly forestry is and it got me thinking wow how can this be environmentally friendly and that's right they say because it absorbs their forest absorbs carbon which any forest does and it sort of got me thinking well how can you know is this what environmentally environmental forestry means so i wanted to create a project that looked at the australian forest which I haven't shot yet, but that will be the next stage. And I wanted to um, look at a European forest, you know, a European country that did forestry. That um, and that. So there were some um, important criteria that had to be met. It had to be in a small community because the Alpine Shire is a small community, regional community. So I wanted something, you know, that was sort of similar in demographics and things like that. 
And I needed access. That was really, really important. I didn't want to go hopping over fences and things like that. I do that in Australia, and I don't mind. I'm an Australian, so it doesn't really worry me. But I don't want to start doing it in a foreign country and be deported for, you know. So Finland, um, I found a place called Manta in Finland. And Finland has a um, every man's right to access the forest, provided you do no damage. And the only thing you can't really do is set fires. So Finland became the place. I thought, okay, I'll go down there. And I was lucky, I um, received support from the Australia Council. And I also had a three-month residency in um, the Saralakius Museum, which was fantastic. During the residency, I would take, because I had a use of the museum car, not every day, but whenever I needed it. Most of the time with this footage, I was cycling on the museum bike, cycling to different locations. But because of the weight of my equipment, I figured, and the fact that the bicycle was a um, no-gear bicycle with you pedal backwards to brake, I thought 11 kilometers in one direction was enough. You know, so that was my radius. It was heading towards the end of the residency. And I'd been out recording, but I was, you know, like whenever you're doing a residency or coming to an end of the project, you really want to make sure you get everything. You go out even for longer hours. And, you know, it was really weird with the drone because I only had two batteries. I'd often have to go back and charge it during the day. This day, I had a gut feeling, just call it quits, Cornish. That's what I said to myself. But, no, I didn't call it quits. Here we go. Oh, what's this? A tree. Oh, dear. So Cornish has got her expensive equipment stuck 25 metres up on a tree. So I guess the point of this room here, or the philosophy underpinning it, is that Madeline and I wanted audiences to to feel the kinds of things that we feel in the field. And I'm sure many of you feel when you go camping or bushwalking and things like that. We wanted it to be, in, in, in part, physically challenging. That it wasn't a flat surface that was comfortably laid out, that you had some obstacles to, to negotiate. That you discovered the work through a haptic, tactile, physical engagement, through, through the movement of your body through the space that there is no ideal listening position for you, that you have to do the work, that it's not a passive engagement, that it's actually one that invites you to discover, to probe, to think about the environments that you're interacting with uh, within the exhibition. It just feels like a wild space, like you can perch on top of it, like you're on a top of a mountain and just sort of look around and listen around. I think for me it's wanting to kind of feel the extremes of the space so you can see naturally that um, everything is kind of pressing inwards to here. Yeah, it's sort of been compressed inwards. I think that's what made me walk because I wanted to feel why why it's kind of guiding me here and what that, what that feels like. And I guess often with sound there's that sense that you want to be in the middle, you want to kind of get that... 
um, binaural sort of thing happening. So, yeah, naturally body kind of goes that way, I think. Again, it really focuses you on what are you feeling and what what is the kind of embodied experience of what you're seeing and feeling in the space. And it draws you down, I think. I'm, I think we should keep walking towards it. So this idea of a sensory experience, it's fundamental to, to how we experience the world around us. Basically how it works, it, it's a process called simultaneous perception. And that's all of our senses work in unison together. And that's how we experience. So if you kind of think, think about simultaneous perception as this kind of invisible kind of layer around your body, uh, which is processing the world around you. It's not just visual. Um, it's every, every sense working together. We're, we're obviously, we're not aware of this and we're not aware of it for, for a very good reason because most of how we process the world around us is on a subconscious level. And it's on a subconscious level because we could not consciously cope with the mental stress of trying to process all of these things, all of these built environment elements and um, other people and nature. And, and it's a very, very complex environment wherever we are. So most of how you um, experience the world around you is subconscious level. It's going on all the time. You're not aware of it. I think it's really important to, to be honest that design can only do so much. There's only so much that it can influence in that complex relationship that we have um, between the human body and, and the environments that we live in. I feel like I left every interview with like a renewed sense of my place, and I don't mean like an existential place. I mean my physical place in the world. So my awareness of sound and acoustics, my awareness of obstacles, my awareness of nature, it's much more present for me now. In a way where maybe I had like a jolted awareness. You know, every now and then you're like reminded of, oh, this space feels loud or, oh, this space feels unsafe. Whereas now I feel like I'm just like always asking that question of like, how does this space sound? How do I feel? And what is it about this space that's making me feel those things and have those reactions? One big takeaway for me from this was understanding that actually there is no one experience, uh, one sensory experience of the world. Um, there's no sort of an objective sensory experience that we all can plug into if only, you know, we paid more attention. A person with dementia will hear the world in a completely different way from me, someone who has grown up with different sounds will hear the world differently from me and if we are to continue living closer together we have to accommodate that diversity of perception. Supercast is produced by Assemble Papers and supported by RMIT Design Hub. Hosted by Eugenia Lim, Jana Perkovich, and me, Beck Fari. I'm also the audio producer. Supercast theme music is composed by After Midnight Luminata and supplied to us by the Houses in Motion label. For more Supercast, head to supercast.fm.